And so I'm glad that we're all here together for part five of this collection where we are walking through these significant moments in the life of Jesus from the time that he hit the pages of history as an adult until he died on the cross as a sacrifice and was resurrected for you and for me. We're looking at these moments of his earthly ministry. And so today I want to ask you, I want to start with this question, and we're going to end with a question. So that's how you'll know when we're at the end is when I ask you one more question. Um, If you grew up in church, did you ever have this experience? Maybe you were in a religious setting or a religious household where you felt like you were placing your religion over people. That what you believed was presented to you as more important than the people who were believing. I know I've had those experiences. I would bet you have too. And so today I want to look at the dangers of that way of living, the dangers of putting religion over people. Because we all know that cycle around and around and around it goes. In fact, some of you, that might be the very reason that you gave up on church, that you've given up on religion, that maybe this is the first time in a long time that you have darkened the doorstep of a church and here you are today hearing the pastor say, all he wants is your money once again. Oh, man, that's, that's what we talk about every single Sunday. Maybe you had an experience where you ran into someone who loved their religion and loved their church more than they loved you. That's odd, right? It doesn't feel good. It doesn't sit right. It's like we know even without knowing that that's not how we were created. So we're in the middle of this journey where we're walking through the life of Jesus and looking at these significant moments and reflecting on them and understanding how they apply to our lives, even still today, 2,000 years later, that this guy wasn't just any guy, that Jesus came to bring something brand new that would revolutionize the world forever. We could never be the same because of who he was on earth and what he did while he was here. So today's discussion will be an interesting addition to this collection. Um, About halfway through, it's going to get real sticky because we're going to dig into a history lesson. So about halfway through this message, you might go, didn't know she was a historian. She is not, to be very clear. So if like halfway through the sermon I start doing this, It's because I don't want to say anybody's name wrong or like a date wrong or whatever. It's very intimidating being up in front of all of you very wonderful people. Um, It's a big deal. So about halfway through, you're going to say, hey, this feels like a history class. And I would agree with you. But I promise, stick with me to the end. And this is something that I promise you will revolutionize the way you walk out your faith every single day. So where we left off last week on this journey with Jesus He had just revealed for the first time what his agenda was here on the earth. And we call it the Sermon on the Mount. But this message that Jesus was giving was one that he gave often. This was like his really like go-to content that he would preach over and over and over again. So you can even imagine there were those in the crowd that were like, here he goes again. Same thing. Same message. This guy, it's like he's got nothing new. In fact... This was probably the core content 
of like the message, the gospel message that Jesus was on the earth to drive home. In this message, he began to contrast himself with what those hearing it in this first century setting would have understood was a huge deal. He began to contrast himself with the, the laws of the land and the laws of the era. And he would say things like, you have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it taught, but I'm teaching. And as his audience would quickly recognize, wait a second, are you contrasting yourself to Moses, the lawgiver? Moses, the guy who went up the mountain and heard from God himself and then brought down God's code for our conduct? Are you truly contrasting yourself to him? And Jesus, so many occasions, would give the proverbial, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. Jesus perhaps felt this tension in the audience Every single time he would bring this message, every single time he would talk about something new, something different that was coming, he would feel this tension. So he made this statement that we looked at last week in Matthew chapter 5, where he said, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets, which would have been their scriptures. Jesus was referring to what is the equivalent of our English Old Testament. And so he's saying, I didn't come to abolish that. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. The tension you feel is real, Jesus would say. But I have not come to edit your scripture or take it away. I have come to fulfill your scripture. If God's original covenant with Israel were an assignment, Jesus was saying, I have come to complete it. Even though this was so contrasting and so new, the text says that in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with a real authority quite unlike their teachers of religious law. But this surfaces yet another issue that launches us into the discussion we're going to have today. How much authority did Jesus really have? How much authority did he really have? If he was going to speak with such authority, how? How much? Who? Why? So many questions. Did he have the authority to replace everything Moses had put in place? Did he really have the authority to replace Solomon's temple? Did he really have the authority? Was he really the person they had been waiting for all these centuries who would bring something brand new into the world? Soon after Jesus said this, he has an interesting conversation with some Pharisees. And we have to put it in context. We kind of have to understand the scene that we're laying out. Everywhere that Jesus would go, a crowd, including Pharisees and Sadducees, would follow him around. And he was constantly on the verge of being trapped. Like all of these really smart scholars were like, today's the day. 
I'm going to get him. I'm going to do it. I'm going to find him breaking some kind of rule, breaking some kind of law, and I'm going to be the hero that shuts this guy down. So in Matthew chapter 12, it says, at about this time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. They had been going from town to town, preaching and speaking the same message of newness, of life that is to come. And so the guys are just walking through this grain field, and his disciples were hungry. So they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. And those Pharisees, who were waiting to trap Jesus, saw them do it, and they protested, Look! Aha! I knew it! Somebody get some pen and paper. We don't have pen and paper, but somebody get some pen and paper and write this down. I knew it. Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting on the Sabbath. We found the loophole. Jesus' response was so simple, so eloquent. He says, you know as well as I do, breaking off a head of grain is not breaking, is not violating any sort of Sabbath law. And they end up having this back and forth when Jesus gives them this overarching principle that really is going to hone in on today's thought. Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, he says, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Jesus said, you've got it all wrong. God is not more concerned with the Sabbath than he is with his people. He did not create the people to fulfill the restrictions of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a gift for his people. You think God loves his law more than he loves his people. And the reason Jesus could say this with such confidence is because they did. They loved God's law more than they loved God's people. They did what many religious people do. They fell in love with their religion, eventually neglecting the people for whom the religion was created and to whom the religion was given. They prioritized law over people, and this is the essence of legalism. If you've never heard that term, this is why so many people walk away from the church. Legalism always prioritizes a view over a you. Legalism always prioritizes the law over the people. In fact, you may have left the church because somebody in the church you grew up in tried to make the Bible more important than your divorced mom or your gay brother. And the experience that you had put such a terrible taste in your mouth that you walked away, not even fully understanding who Jesus is, who scripture says that he was, and what he wanted to do inside of you. Throughout the gospels, part of the new that Jesus introduced was this. When people used the law of God to dishonor people made in the image of God, Jesus was quick to remind them they were on the wrong side of God. 
So this conversation goes back and forth and back and forth. And finally, it comes to an end. And Jesus lands this statement that we looked at last week that is the hinging point for our discussion today. Look, you're so concerned about the Sabbath. You're so concerned about the law. You're so concerned about the temple. Let me give you a little more information. In Matthew chapter 12, he says, There is one here who is even greater than the temple. There is one here among you, standing in this crowd, who is greater than the temple. To compare yourself to the temple, to declare yourself greater than the temple, was not arrogance or ignorance or insanity. It could have been all of those things, but more than anything, it was blasphemy. This was an attack on the temple. Nothing was greater than the temple, and certainly no person, no human could be greater than the temple. To declare this was a threat on the temple, and a threat on the temple was a threat on the entire nation. The Jewish population in first century Jerusalem would die in order to protect the temple. This was not something that they took lightly. This is where they housed the law of God. This is where God dwelt. This is where they would go to worship and make sacrifice to their God, the only God that they knew was the creator of all. This was the temple, the epicenter of their worship, the epicenter of their entire world. Nothing was greater. And if you threaten the temple, you threaten me. You threaten my nation. You threaten everything I know to be true. And Jesus says, there is one here who is even greater. There is one here among you who is greater than the temple. That's impossible because nothing, nothing is greater than our temple. They had worked so hard and suffered so much just to see this temple exist. And this was the second temple. They had already been there and done that a couple times before. The first temple, Solomon's temple, had been destroyed in about 586 B.C. People were expelled from the city or sold into slavery. The Babylonians cast off all the treasures from the temple along with some of the, the best and the brightest from the city. We read stories in our Old Testament about Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, these heroes of our faith. Some years later, the Persian emperor allowed the people to return to the city. Seems like a good thing. Okay, we're on the right track. Things are moving in our direction. Cyrus the Great said, you can go back to the city and you can rebuild your temple. But listen, I don't want it to be like Solomon's temple. I want you to be happy, but I don't want you to be too happy. So if we're going to build another temple, we're going to do like a Nakano temple, like maybe get some like uh, shipping containers. Like if that will work for a temple, that's the kind of temple you can build. So they build one kind of. And there were people on the scene when this Econo temple was built who had experienced Solomon's temple and remembered the grandeur of that place. 
And scripture tells us those who saw this new, tiny, subpar temple wept at the sight of it because they knew what they had before and they couldn't let go of that vision. And now this was all they had. Then, 20 years before Jesus is born, hundreds of years have passed by. 20 years before Jesus is born, Herod the Great goes to the Jews in the city of Jerusalem and says, I'd like to rebuild the temple. I think this is a good idea. And I want to rebuild it to its former glory. So scripture tells us about how they negotiated back and forth and they finally come to an agreement and they're going to rebuild this temple. So 20 years before Jesus is born, the temple is rebuilt and it is extraordinary. Of course, by this point, no one is alive who experienced Solomon's temple. But of course, it had been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And this temple was perfect. This temple was beautiful. This temple was worthy of housing the glory of God. And I wanted you to see what it looks like. Now, remember, this is 20 years before Jesus is born. And this is a model of, obviously, we don't have, like, there weren't cameras. This isn't like a real picture. But this is a model of the temple um, based on what the, how the Bible describes it, based on what history has proven. This is what the temple would have looked like. And if you Google it, this is like a totally like sidebar. If you Google it, this is actually really tiny. So there's like people standing around it and it like comes up to their waist. So it's just, it's really odd if you Google it because it seems like it should be so gigantic and there's like people towering over it. Anyway, walls in some of the places were 100 feet high. So of course, this is a mountainous terrain. And so at some of the highest peaks, these walls would have been 100 feet high, 37 acres, here's the important part, of cut stone. Now imagine, this is ancient times, like they don't have the tools that we have today. Even by today's standards, this building would be nearly impossible to build. Some of the stones included in this were 11 by 16 by 44 feet long massive. So many of the stones weighed over 500 tons. And we have a closer up picture of it too, so you can see some of the stonework and detail that went into this temple, the most sacred of spaces. The thing that made it an ancient wonder of, an arch of the architectural world was that the entire structure was built on this plaza made of cut stone. 37 acres of smooth surface to then place this structure on top of. And the structure itself was even 60 feet high. So you're talking about 100 foot of wall, 60 foot of building. This was massive. Something greater than the temple. Something greater than the temple, Jesus? Something greater than this marvel? I don't think so. One afternoon, Jesus and his guys are actually at the temple. They're out on the plaza that's leading up to the structure, and they're actually making their way out. 
And this would have been something so miraculous to every single person for miles and miles and miles and miles for all of human existence. This place was a marvel. So as they're making their way out and almost looking back over their shoulders, just still in awe and wonder, because it's only 20, like it's still a new building, right? It's only 20 years old at this point. And one of the disciples turns around and says, teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at these impressive stones in the walls. This is one of those sites that surely would have never gotten old, that would have always struck you as magnificent. So as they pause once more to marvel at the extraordinary building, Jesus turns to take it in with them. You can almost hear the tone of them just as an afterthought, right before they walk down the steps into the valley. But what Jesus says next is so significant. Whether you are a Christ follower or not, this is so significant and so important that I would actually love for you to go home this week and excuse me and fact check me. I hope that you fact check me. I hope you think that is so outlandish it can't possibly be true and then you look it up and figure out I'm right and you're wrong. I want you to fact check me on this one because it is so significant. He's, what he says next would surely have shaken the original hearer to their core, and I think it should shake us too. What happens next can easily get skipped over, but it is truly, truly epic. Jesus replied, yes, look at these great buildings. You're totally right. They are beautiful, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. What? Hold on. How is that possible? Okay, we knew when you said something greater than the temple and we all understood you were talking about yourself. That was weird. This is impossible. That every single stone will be torn down meaning that these massive stones will eventually live in the valley below. Jesus is essentially telling these guys, don't be too impressed. It's a teardown. The problem is, this is impossible. You can't tear down Herod's temple. An earthquake might crack the foundation here or there, you might lose a few bricks over the years. Maybe you have to like do some foundation repair. But even an earthquake couldn't throw these stones off of the wall. There was only one force in the entire world that would have been powerful enough to accomplish this. And that was the Roman army. But the Roman army is not going to destroy Herod's temple. Herod was a vassal king who worked for Rome, and he built this temple to keep the Jews quiet and peaceful. So he's like, there you go. You got what you want. No one's going to tear down this temple. Jesus, this isn't just disturbing. It's absolutely 
impossible. In fact, if this happened, it would be apocalyptic. It would be, as they knew it, the end of the world. And here Jesus is just so casually saying, not one stone will be left on top of another. So they made their way down into the valley, and you can almost infer that they're walking behind Jesus like, I heard what he said. Did you hear what he said? I'm a little worried about what he said. When do you think this is going to happen? I don't know. And I'm a little scared. I'm worried. Are you worried? I'm so, we should like run and hide, right? We should definitely do that. So they're just walking along behind Jesus. Jesus just living his life, scooting along in his sandals, down the steps, through the valley, back up the Mount of Olives. And in verse 3, it says, later, Jesus sat down on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. He would have had this panoramic view of the city to be able to see it all and understand every single detail from that viewpoint. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, hey, uh, Jesus, remember earlier when you said that uh, the world was going to end, like everything was going to be destroyed? Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? It's the same thing all of us do when a hurricane is about to arrive, right? We're like, let us know, like give us an update so we can hunker down. Like they're wanting to know, when do we hunker? Like how much time do we have to tell the people? And then when should we be fully prepared? This is so significant that I really do want you to fact check this. I would love for you to go to Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 21 and read what Jesus says about the days that this would happen. We encourage you here at Village Heights to use the YouVersion Bible app. All of our digital gathering guides are there so you can follow along with our scriptures and that's great and we want you to do that. But this week, I would love if you would crack it open and read in the Gospels what Jesus says about when Herod's temple falls. Just read it for yourself so that you can understand what's about to happen. We're going to show you in 40 years what happens. It's mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. So who cares about these giant stones that fell? My mind is melted forever. When you read how he describes what happened, clearly he was heartbroken, he was disturbed, but he was not exaggerating. If that were to happen, the world as they knew it would literally come to an end. And 40 years later, that is exactly what happened. Almost to the perfect, perfect detail that we have on record, it is exactly what happened. After four years of battling what would have been considered gangs, you know, like these guys on the outskirts that had a really good idea and they're going to overthrow Rome, there was an uprising. And they had won a single victory. And it gave them like a little bit of pep in their step. They're like, okay, we beat the Roman army like one time. You guys, great job. High five. Maybe we can overthrow the whole government. Let's do it. So all of these gangs start popping up throughout the entire region, as far north as Galilee. And they're like, this is our time. 
All of the citizens were terrified, but it was the young men who were fighting in battle that were like, if not now, then when? Let's go. We're going to do it. So all of these armies from all across the region start coming to Jerusalem. They're like, we all got to be on the same page. Everybody get to the city. Everybody get to the epicenter. And we're going to devise a plan to overthrow the government. And this is a great idea. It's always a great idea when people overthrow the government, right? Like it always ends well. So it just so happens that at the same time, there's a Jewish festival. So not only are all of these armies coming to the city to like unite and join forces and come up with a game plan, all of the Jewish citizens across the land were coming to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage because that's what you did for festivals. You show up to the city. So in the meantime, they had built an entire wall around the city. So now the city is protected by an additional wall all the way around. So when the Jewish pilgrimage shows up, they're like, well, we can't get into the city. The emperor of Rome is like, here's a great idea. Let them in, lock the door, and let them starve to death. So they all come inside, they lock the door to where they can't leave, and they start to starve to death. They start to turn on one another to where then they're fighting the Roman army that was undefeatable during the day and fighting each other at night. But they were still so prideful that they were like, we're actually going to win. You were never going to win. And they're like, we're actually going to win. So then at night, they're fighting each other like, who's going to be emperor of our new city? And it's just insane. Eventually, they start to wither. The Roman army takes advantage of this opportunity, and they end up taking the entire town. They kill anyone they can, take others, sell them into slavery, they burn anything that will catch on fire, and they go to the temple, and history will prove that they pull down every single stone of the temple to where it was no longer on the wall, but living in the valley below. And this is so true that you can actually see this today. On the southwest corner of the temple in Jerusalem, there are stones that lay there from Herod's temple where the Romans took them down. Not one stone will be left on top of another. It only took 40 years for Jesus to be proven once again is absolutely correct. Not one stone. The group of men who followed Jesus after the apostles. So many of his first followers, his closest companions, were martyred for their faith because they knew who he was. They saw what he did, and they were going to proclaim the gospel until their very last breath, and they were martyred. The guys that followed are who we refer to as the church fathers. They were the first group of people to like take on leadership and keep the movement going after everyone else had been killed off. These are our church fathers. And they did exactly what I am doing today. They went, aha, Jesus was right. You see the stones? He said it was going to happen and nobody listened. And now here we are. He was absolutely right. And you should believe, get right or get left. You know, like they're like, they became very, very intense gospel preachers. So why don't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say anything about this? If you had the golden ticket to prove that everything you were saying was right, 
Don't you think you would write that down in a letter? Don't you think that you would editorialize this moment and go, Jesus said it and he was right. Ha! Like, don't you think in your human pride and arrogance, you would say he was right all along. You should listen to what I'm saying. Don't you think that should have been included in the Gospels? The issue is, this hadn't happened yet. So often the Gospels are presented to us as something that generations had gone by and then they're reflecting back and writing it down. Yes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are a reflection on the life that they saw Jesus live. And they are looking back on it and saying, there are moments where they do editorialize, where they do say, now that I understand his death, burial, and resurrection, I can tell you that. They'll say things like, he said this, the disciples didn't understand, and now we do. They'll encourage you with, now, like, learn from me, learn from my mistakes, learn from what I've seen, because I saw what he did, and it was good, and you should believe it too. So if this happened, why wouldn't they write it down? Because it hadn't happened yet. It happened exactly as Jesus said that it would. But the way that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are describing Jesus' life to us, they don't yet know the stones will, in fact, come down. They just know that he said it, but they haven't yet experienced it. Why not leverage this? Why not use that to their benefit? And here's the answer that I think is more than enough for you to declare Jesus as your Lord. When the Gospels were written, the temple was still standing. So for a prediction that catastrophic to come to pass makes it indisputable that Jesus is worth following. He's not a fortune teller. That's not how this works. He was fully God and fully man, and he walked on this earth with the understanding of the divine, but the experiences of a human. Not one stone will be left on top of another, and it looks as if the only reason Jesus, Jesus shared this with his guys was because they stopped to marvel at the temple. What could have been an insignificant moment, Jesus capitalized on the opportunity to make it something significant. His heart was surely broken. He didn't describe the events that were to come with joy and excitement. He was grieved because these were his people and he knew they would suffer. But he was clear, the days of temple sacrifice, the days of God's covenant are coming to an end and it will be replaced with something new, something improved, something universal, and something portable. It would no longer be housed in one single place where you had to go. It would now be housed inside of the very people it was meant to change. 20 years later, while the temple was still standing, 
20 years after Jesus makes this prediction, the Apostle Paul, an ex-temple-loving guy, writes to some ex-pagans in Corinth who now have had their own temple experience. And he shares these astounding words that we miss because we've never been temple people. We don't understand the gravity and the severity of this moment when Paul says, don't you realize that your body is the temple? Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Something has changed. Something new has come. Your body houses the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that we kept in the Holy of Holies and protected has now been released to live inside of every single one of God's people. The Holy Spirit has left the building and inhabits the hearts of his people. So here's the implication. With the arrival of Jesus, sacred has been commuted. There are no more sacred sites, only sacred people. The message of the gospel, the message of Jesus that new has come to give, not for a group of people, but for the entire world. It's this. You are sitting beside sacred. You are married to sacred. You are raising sacred. You are employed by and employ sacred. That every single person who professes God as their Lord is sacred. You no longer have to make a pilgrimage, make a sacrifice to beg God to hear you. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you and you are sacred. No more sacred sites, only sacred people. Your value, your worth, your purpose is directly tied to the price that Jesus already paid. There is one here who is even greater than the temple. Something greater indeed has come. And his invitation is still exactly the same. Follow me. Follow me. So here is my question. And Ethan is actually going to come for just a minute so that we can reflect on this. And that song that he did at the end of worship, this is how I thank the Lord. He's going to sing a few um, choruses of that for each of us. Because my question is this, and it requires reflection, but it's so, so simple. How will you respond when Jesus is here in front of us inviting you, follow me? How will you respond? What is one thing that you can do this week? One step that you can take for the first time or again that will make your relationship with Jesus better. What is one step that you can take towards following him? Whatever that step is for you, learning to be bold in your obedience, 
learning to be quick in your obedience is the most significant way for you to respond to his invitation. So will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. And we are overwhelmed by all of who you are. Lord, we don't have to make a case for you because you already did it. You have proven time and time again in your word and it coming to fruition in our lives and things getting better that you are God of all. And we stand in awe of you. There are no words that we can say to express our gratitude or our love for you. But in our obedience, this is how we can thank you. That as you call us to make steps, to make moves in the right directions, and we obey, that's how we thank you. That's how we worship you. That's how we draw near to you. So God, would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Would you change us? God, don't let us leave this place without knowing what you are asking us to do today, to be people who look like you, who act more like you, who love more like you do. It's in your name we pray. I will sing, this is why I thank the 